Good morning, everyone and everybody. It is a pleasure to have you here at No Easy Answer, this wonderful, beautiful, amazing podcast where we talk about all sorts of things under the sun through a biblical perspective, trying to understand that which God would have us do in these topsy-turvy, amazing times we live in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Cameron Carter. I am your host. And so far, you're only person to even be talking in this podcast, but if anyone wanted to ever join me on a podcast, you are more than welcome to reach out, contact me, and I'd love to do some interviews. Um, today, like I have been for a very long time, continuing on this theme of violence, and man, I had this list put together in my mind, and then somehow I guess I threw away that piece of paper in my mind of all the list of the different topics I was going to talk about, and I can't seem to find it. Uh, all that to say, man, I, I was trying to get through this semi-alphabetically, and I thought I'd done everything within the G's. I thought there was one more. I couldn't find it. And then I was like, oh, yeah, and then I got that one thing in, in the F's. I can't find it. Fire violence? I don't know. If you know what it is, let me know what it is. But today, uh, before we move on to, I guess the next thing is going to be in the M's, so we'll get there next. Uh unless I can find my list. Today we're talking about environmental violence, and this is kind of a weird, weird one to be talking about, and I'm not entirely prepped to talk about this because I feel like I could probably go on for this on hours because this is really an exciting topic for me. So we're just going to dive right in. Now, again, just a word of caution, this is a highly politicized issue. If you listen to just the first five minutes of this, you can probably walk away and be like, ah, I hate this guy. And then if you listen to the last five minutes, you're probably like, ah, I hate this guy. Because I'm going to be making the rounds everywhere. And I'm going to be ragging on everybody and everything. So please don't be like, oh yeah, this is just one of those people. No. Let's exercise our abilities to listen. Let's exercise our abilities to hear someone out to the end of what they're saying. And then maybe we can come to a better understanding of that. I, I know my own experiences. I don't know why. Whenever I'm trying to express something, I always feel like you get cut off within a few seconds, and it's like, that's not what I was saying. I was considering all things, and you didn't let me consider them all. So, and I am a very much, I'm very much am a verbal processor, so I gotta process through things as I speak. So you get to walk with me as I process this. So, environmental violence. This really just came up because there was this massive, extremely high temperature event um, going on in the northwest of the United States, and we're, what is today? Today is July, uh, 6th, 2021, and, uh, I, I, man, I just feel like I needed to talk about this particular issue, because, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm freaking out, but I am prudentially concerned. Let's put it that way. There are things going on here that are uh, definitely carries in, canaries in the coal mine that are starting to, to drop off, and, and we're starting to see these things happen much more frequently. And even from my own perspective, on my own context, that, that brings me to points of concern, and I'll get into that later. But this event that is happening in the Northwest where these record-shattering temperatures. And I mean, it's not just like, oh, it got a few degrees hotter than it was. No, this is like by tens of degrees hotter than ever on record. And the fact that 
arriving places in Seattle, places in Canada that are having higher temperatures than in Miami ever recorded, having higher temperatures than Las Vegas that ever recorded. Uh, this is pretty significant. I mean, I was hearing cases of the amount of glacier runoff from the, from the melting that's happening in British Columbia is flooding out houses. There's not even a drop of rain in the sky, and the houses are flooding out just from the amount of glacier water that is melting. It's just... Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but it, it's happening. It, it is going down. So... And, and that's another thing that kind of provoked me to want to go over this topic right now. Just the timeliness of it, because this is extremely important. And, and sadly, 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 the fact that this has become politicized has made it very difficult and very darn near impossible to even begin to talk about it without passions becoming inflamed on one side or the other. So let's talk about some of the basic stances that are here and then we'll start to examine some of them. So on the right, and 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 there's a scale here, right? There's people that'll say, no, there is no climate change happening whatsoever. This is just a vast conspiracy by the liberal left. And so there is no such thing as climate change in fact, the planet might even be getting cooler. That's, that's one position. Then you have another scale where it says, yeah, there, there is climate change happening. There are things that are changing in our environment, but it's not necessarily man-made. Uh, and and it's, it's, this is just a natural cycle that we're experimenting right now. And then I think in the, the more middle-centered right, you're going to have, yeah, there is there are some, uh, some effects from man, but they are very small compared to everything. Okay, so that's kind of the typical right positions. Uh, left positions, again, starting from the center, it's like, yes, the, this, this climate change is definitely caused by man, and this is caused by greenhouse gas emissions, and this is causing these issues that are going on here, and this is backed up by science. Uh, and, and then it can go on to, I guess, even farther that, wow, yeah, this is definitely man-made caused and on purpose, and trying to cause these issues, and so uh, this is um, definitely man-made and caused, and so the the solutions now begin to become bigger than that. Now, I'm not going to go into all the solutions on the left because they're the ones that are actually kind of looking at solutions, and I want to examine those a little bit later and get into that whole bit. On the right, I can say the impetus for movement, if you hold any of those previous views, that either the world is cooling or that this is just a natural cycle, or this is very slightly man-made influenced. The the impetus for actual action is very small, if non-existent. Uh, There there is no need to do anything, according to those viewpoints. There's no requirement to do anything on those viewpoints, much less to require changes on a global scale, or on a political scale, or on an economic scale. That is just not even not even within the the realm of possibilities there, nor is it necessary. And any attempt to do so really is an attempt to remove freedom from all of us. That is an attempt for more government takeover, more government control, and and to rip our freedom away from us. Um, On the left, if you see that this is actually a concern, then yes, there's a lot more impetus to actually do something about it. Um, And and those ranges of, of do something about it can be uh, mostly political, I would say, and we're going to get into some of that. Um, and then you can go from these political changes of like, okay, let's do carbon credits. 
to let's outlaw internal combustion uh, engines to to the far extremist environmental perspective which is like what's the best thing a human being can do for the environment and the answer is dig your own grave and throw yourself into it and die that's that's about it um and uh, really I find all of these positions horribly 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 frustrating the entire gamut from the left to the right I find just absolutely despicable and, and let me go through that. And, and, and before I start talking about what my own solutions are, let me, let's just take a step back and, and look at the look at the situation. Okay. Uh, it's going to come out more and more, and it is coming out more and more, that uh, there is, in my opinion, and again, if you disagree with me, I respect you, you have my respect. I'm not saying you don't know anything or you're an idiot or anything like that. I'm just saying this is my own opinion. It's my own podcast. And if you hate me, that's fine. You can hate me. I love you. Um... In my own opinion, I I think it's very clear, very clear that there is significant climate changes occurring. And I have to pause here and say, yes, there's a difference between weather and there's a difference between climate. Weather is the day-to-day or even week-to-week, perhaps even season-to-season fluctuations that occur due to a specific weather event, a.k.a. I can't go out in the middle of, right now it's, again, July, and it was raining yesterday, it was actually in the mid-70s, and I can't go out on that day in July and be like, wow, this is normal because it's raining today and it's in the mid-70s for the high temperature in July. Therefore, all, all days should be like that where I live. No, that's actually not the case. The typical climate is that it's around high 90s, maybe low 100s. Uh, maybe mid-90s for the highs, and it's simply sunny, and then every once in a while you get a thunderstorm. That, that's the climate. That's the general, overall uh, description of temperature, precipitation, uh, wind, all of the humidity, uh, incoming sunlight. There's all this kind of stuff that uh, compiles together to actually make climate. And you can, there, there's a whole different thing of climate. You can look at the uh, Oh my gosh, I forgot the name. There's a climate classification, the K, the Caspian Kager, Krager, ah, I forgot the name, I'll, I'll think of it. The Copen, the Copen climate uh, classification, but it's the, the, the Copen, I think it's with the K. And um, that kind of gives a, a map of the earth and says, look, this is what the climate is for any particular region within earth. And, and the map is pretty complete. There are some areas where they're lacking data. So if you look in the middle of Columbia, there's two smaller Arctic regions, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but it's just because they're lacking data in that area. And so that, that's where it is. But they, they break it down into, I think, nine different groups. Maybe there's 10 or 12, 15 different climate classifications based on this. Um, Copagan, Copagan, I want to say, climate classification. You look it up. There's a map, and you can see wherever you are in the world, there's a good idea of where what your climate is. And a lot of it depends on your altitude. It can depend on lots of different things, both on latitude, altitude, distance from the ocean, uh, distance from a large body of water. I mean, not by like a lake, but like an ocean, or maybe a sea, like a Caspian Sea. Um, those are all things that can affect your climate. The weather is what's going on right now. So the fact that, yes, there was a very large 
weather event that occurred over the Northwest, and I think is still occurring, that's just blowing people's minds in the Northwest, and sadly many people are dying because of it, because people are not prepared for that type of weather event. Or what happened here in Texas uh, this last winter with the freeze that left a lot of us without electricity for a very long time. Uh, those are weather events. Those are not necessarily climate events. Those are weather events. Nonetheless, as climate changes, as climate becomes less and less stable, it opens the door for larger scale and more extreme weather events. And that's what we have to deal with. The weather events are the ones that cause death. There's, these are the ones that cause disasters. These are the ones that cause issues. These are the ones that cause uh, drought, that cause floods, that cause storms. Those are all weather events, but those things are going to be based off of the changing of climate. Where all of a sudden these averages, which come together and make these large events, are, are the ones that are going to be changing everything. So, I believe there is climate change. I believe there are more significant and higher intensity weather events. Even in my own profession, we work on this, and, and the data from many years ago is, is no longer sufficient to predict the intensity of rainfall events. That so They're getting bigger, and they're getting less frequent, but they're becoming more intense, which means it's more difficult for plants, animals, and humans to compensate for this, because now instead of getting just a glass of water every time you want it, when you're thirsty, you get a you get an absolute deluge from the fire hose every six months, and it's like, all right, figure that out. <laughs> so instead of getting a glass of water every three hours or however often you drink water, now you get a very large rain event, and you got to capture all of it and figure out how to hold on to it for the next who knows how long, because you don't know when it might come again, and it, it becomes very difficult to live sustainably with that, both for humans and for natural systems. Now... With that change in, in climate, what does this do to? Is the planet cooling down? Again, I, I'll be honest with you, I've not looked into the data in this. I really have not looked into the data to be like, wow, yeah, the planet's definitely warming up, but the planet's definitely cooling down. Um, here's what I have seen, though, and, and this is coming out more and more and more, and, and these documents are becoming public, and I think there's going to be even more of them. And, and what I'm referring to is... There are a number of lawsuits being lodged against oil and gas companies. And before you start cheering or throwing me out the window here, hold on for just a second. Many of these internal documents from uh, these large oil and gas companies from the 70s, from even the 60s, or even earlier, are showing how their own scientists are saying, hey guys, the use of these uh, fossil fuels are causing issues with the climate and will cause issues with the climate. And we need to do something about it now to take care of it. Um, the internal documents also show how these companies heard this advice from the scientists and said, uh, let's ignore that for a little bit. And then as the scientists kept pointing to proof that, look, this is happening, they began to put their own monitors on their own ships to monitor CO2 as, as their tankers crossed the oceans to kind of see what was going on. They, they began to track this thing for a number of years and decades, and when their own information began to show that, yes, the CO2 was increasing across the oceans and that ocean temperatures were rising and the air temperature was rising as a result, uh, they stopped monitoring it. They're like, oops, we don't like this information. Let's, let's not listen to this. And so they began to, to stop doing it. Uh, now they're dealing with these issues of, huh, we know this, and now our scientists are showing this. So they began to make decisions to 
let's see if we can find someone that has a different opinion. And let's see if we can't give them $20 million and see what they can do with that different opinion. And this began to happen where all of a sudden these people were saying, actually, no, there is no climate change. Actually, no, the plant's not warming up. It's getting cold. Found themselves filled with money and resources so they could do the research for what they're trying to prove, which is sad because science should not be about trying to prove anything. It should just be trying to design experiments that hopefully reveal something about reality. And again, that, that's all a question of how science works and how experiments work and that whole deal. But it's the, the, the ideal is that you have a theory and you try to disprove your theory. You try to work very hard to show, listen, I, I have this, this theory I came up with and because of human nature, we kind of want the things we come up with to, to succeed. To be as impartial as possible, I'm going to try very hard to disprove this theory. I don't think many people do that anymore, but that, that's the ideal. Uh, and, and so, anyways, these guys that came up with these things, and, and maybe they're well-intentioned, maybe they weren't, I don't know, I'm not going to get into that. They just found themselves rolling in research dollars, and now they could go out and publish it. And so now the, the line being produced by the oil and gas company is like, we don't really know. We don't really know. Maybe it's getting warmer, maybe it's not. Maybe this is a natural process, maybe it's not, who knows. Let's just be complete climate agnostics about the whole deal. And obviously this began to begin become aligned politically as well because uh, before I even get to the politics, let, let me let me take a step back here. And this is why I'm, I want to be very clear here. I'm not here to throw faults at people because the truth is when we look at this changing climate, we look at the changing environment, we look at all the things that are going on, there is not a single person on the planet that has existed in the past, I'd say at least 200 years, if not 300 years. And then yeah, I probably have to, I can't go to every person on the planet. But for the last 200 years, uh, well, okay, maybe not 200 years. At least for the last 100 years, I'd say. I don't know if I'm going to get everyone on the planet that cannot say they're completely innocent of any changes in the environment. That cannot say they have no carbon footprint. They cannot say they have not contaminated cannot say they have brought about greater destruction upon the face of the earth. Every single one of us are guilty. Every single one of us. There's not any of us that don't have part of the guilt to share. And because this is such a large-scale event and such a large-scale shed uh, culpability we're going to do what I talked about in the last episode about this whole thing with, uh, with, uh, oh, Rene Girard and finding who to blame. And so really what happens now is the blame game. Who is to blame for all of this? Because even if I'm an oil executive, even if I'm an oil worker, even if I'm a forester, even if I work in a zoo, even if I work in conservation, at the end of the day, everything we work off of in the economy is based off of oil and gas. I'm driving a car right now. Guess what it's running off of? Gasoline. You say, oh, look at me. I'm driving a Tesla. I'm not using gasoline. Yes, you are. Where do you think that plastic came from? Where do you think the batteries were made? How do you think those batteries were transported? Were they transported only in Teslas? Do you think that the people that drove to the Tesla factory only drive Teslas? Do you think the people that were coming up with it never burn gasoline? Do you think that any of the materials 
had absolutely nothing to do with the oil and gasoline-based economy, everything, everything, everything has its footprint in it. And it is the lifeblood of all of our economic activities, social activities, even spiritual activities. If you're going to go to a church, you got to get to the church. Unless you live right next door and you're walking, you're going to be consuming something. Even then, if you're walking, what are you walking on? You're walking on shoes? Well, were those shoes made? How are they? How did they get transported to you? How did you actually get access to them? How did you get money to buy them? What kind of work did you do? How did you get to that work? I'm like, oh, I walked barefoot. Well, congratulations. Well, how did you eat? Where did that food come from? Did you grow it yourself 100%? Even if you did grow it yourself, did you buy some fertilizers? Where those fertilizers come from? Oh, they're made from oil and gas. Ha, shock. Uh, the pesticides are made from oil and gas. The seeds, where'd you get the seeds from? <laughs> How did they get to you? Were they transported to you? There's no way you can get away from this. And so I, I can imagine these guys in the oil and gas industry like, huh, let's see. The very thing that sustains our way of life, here it is, way of life, Everything that sustains our society, the very thing that keeps us going, and yes, that makes us lots of money, is now beginning to cause, or will cause, serious problems for the planet. So either I have to start cutting back on the very thing that keeps us going and provides us jobs and provides us food and provides us health and provides us a home and provides us a chance to actually have a, a life with our families... And does that, not just for us, but for everyone on the planet, to varying degrees, more or less. Either I have to cut back on this and say, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to shut it off. Best of luck, everybody. Uh, Or I can just kind of keep on with business as usual and, and turn a blind eye to it and keep on going. And that is not an easy decision at all. And we know the decision they made. And, and I guarantee you, anybody in the same situation would make the same decision, which is why even though many environmentalists would need corn them and be like, what's the best thing you can do for the planet? It's like dig your own grave and throw yourself in it. They, they haven't done it. They haven't dug their own, they have not dug their own grave. They have not thrown themselves in it. Uh, they're still here. And they're still making an, an environmental footprint upon uh, everything that's here. So, in a sense, I don't, I don't want to be uh, participating in the Girardian act of looking for a scapegoat and blaming them. Because if you're on your right, the scapegoats you're finding are the ones that are on the left that are trying to take away your freedom. Because they're making up the story so that all of a sudden they're going to take away your guns, they're going to take away your truck, they're going to take away all this kind of stuff and hurt the economy. And now you're going to be done and, now, and they're the ones to blame for all of this. If you're on the left, then it's easy to blame the higher-ups, blame the, the oil and gas executives, blame the oil and gas companies, blame all these guys that are doing this kind of stuff, and they're the ones to blame. And I, if I can blame them, then I can absolve myself of all the guilt that I actually have because I'm also participating in it. At the same time, I blame these guys. I, I, I'm getting there. Um, Even if you were to go and protest on the uh, XL Keystone Pipeline, my question is, how did you drive there? (laughs) Did you use oil and gas to get to the protest? How do you heat your home? Or in the building in which you live, how is it heated? Is it perhaps heated by oil and gas? Well, (laughs) there's a good chance that it is. Uh, And so, really... The problem with environment, and this is why everything with environment stalls out, is because there's no way out. 
there is no way out. There is no way to get out of this mess except to blame someone else because we're all part of it. Every single one of us is part of the part of the problems. We're all participating in and creating the problem more and more and more and more and everybody knows it and so we start doing the very human thing of like uh we've got tension we got problems let's find somebody to blame and at the exact same time that they're trying to find someone to blame they try to find someone to blame and also be like it's your job to fix this not my job. This is this is worldwide. This is a big, big, big problem. I can't do this on my own. There's no way. You guys up there making the decisions, making the shots, calling the shots, it's your job to fix it. You guys got to fix it. And because I can blame them for it, and because I know they're probably not going to fix it either, I can keep blaming you for it. All of a sudden, I'm supposedly innocent, and I have nothing to do with it. That is a very false... <laughs> false concept and idea to work with. Uh, that, that's not, that's not a good way to look at it. Um, and, and I would say before we even get into solutions, while yes, large scale changes do need to happen and large scale changes happen from the top down typically, and they can be mandated economic policies, political policies can be put into place that can actually begin to reverse a lot of this stuff. They're not going to come easy. And they're not going to come without a lot of uh, difficult things that are going to cause a lot of people angst and difficulties. And it may be that those people in power, when they put those policies into place, are not going to be in power much longer afterwards. Uh, because the masses will rise up and protest against it. They're not going to like it. Um, and they're well aware of that, which is why there's been so little done. Because this is not an easy issue. This is definitely not an easy issue. All that to say, all that to say, again, we are all to blame for all of it. All of us. From the most powerful to the least powerful, we all have something to do with it. We're all benefiting from it, and we're all trying to blame somebody else for it. Can we just get that through our, our, our heads? If we can come to a point of understanding that we'll be better off that way. Um, I think we'll be much, much better off looking ahead and stopping the blame game and stopping to figure out who can we throw blame at today. So I got to go to work, but next up, next up, I'm going to be talking about, um, our different types of ecological or environmental footprints. What are the different things that we actually create violence against the earth for? And then what does God have to say about this? So let's, let's come back to that in a second. So, if we're talking about environmental violence, where's the violence? What's actually being destroyed or tread upon or moved upon? Um, and again, this, there's a lot of things here that definitely could be considered violence. And I'm going to take a very kind of different stance here. I, I don't want to say that cutting down a tree is inherently violent. Not necessarily. Nor is pulling a weed necessarily violent. Nor is leaving a tree in a spot non-violent, nor is leaving a weed in a spot non-violent either. The, the whole goal here that God has set us up for is that we are, he created us to steward the earth. And that as a steward, that means we're in charge of all the resources that are here. It is at our disposition to do with as the best of our abilities and the best of God's abilities allows us to do. To be what? 
to be fruitful and to multiply. Everything we are here to do in this earth is to help it to be fruitful and help it to multiply. Now, what that means is we're going to run into situations where we have to decide what am I going to allow to be fruitful and what am I going to allow to multiply. There might be something that I really want it to be fruitful and there might be something that I don't want it to be fruitful. And I have to make that choice. And by pruning, by cutting back, by, by putting limits and establishing limits on things, I can effectively increase, increase the multiplicity and the fruitfulness of a certain system uh, if I pull back other units of that. Now, that does not just mean that I can just go out willingly and destroy things. If I go out and cut down an entire forest, I probably have not made things fruitful and I have probably not made things multiply. In terms of life, total biological life, now, maybe underneath that, there's a big mine there, and I can pull out a lot of aluminum. And from that aluminum, that I can make a plane, and people can fly, and they can meet each other and, and have a great time with their family. And so maybe I've increased life in another way, but it's come at the expense of, a, of an environmental cost. And so anything we do is going to have an environmental cost. And, and later I'm going to come talk about solutions here, but the, that is very much the reality in which our current world lives. I believe it's possible to move towards different systems that do not necessarily put us in such a situation where we have to choose either or. Where we have to choose between human health, human welfare, and human uh, happiness and pleasure and blessing and the environment. I believe that it is a false dichotomy. I believe it is possible to achieve both at the same time. Um, but we'll get to that towards the end of this. So... Um, but what are these environmental costs? What are these things that, that, that we do in the environment that does actually create a cost for it? Because, for example, I can cut down a tree, but if I plant seven trees in its place, well, or if I plant better trees that are more appropriate for the environment, or trees that are going to benefit me or someone else in humanity, or benefit nature, it may be a good thing to cut down that tree, and I'll get a lot of benefits out of it. But again, I could cut down a tree, and it may not bring benefits. It really depends, and it, it, it takes some skill, it takes experience, it takes knowledge, it takes uh, a bit of, not a bit, but a lot of watching and observation to be like, huh, I cut down this tree, what is the effect of having cut down this tree five years on, a month later, ten years on? What are those effects? And, and the modern world has no patience for this whatsoever. Um, and that is something that we have lost from our disconnection to the fields. All right, so here it is. What are the different ways in which the, we, we kind of step in and, and violate the environment? I'm going to talk about three major things, and, and these are kind of different footprints, and I'll talk you about, tell you about a book where I'm getting all this information from. Um, but the main one most people know about, and this is the most controversial one, is the carbon footprint. How much... Oh, ah, sorry, we just ran over a, a possum, looks like. Um, how much... Uh, well, there, there's my there's my ecological violence right there. It's at night. I'm driving <laughs> the car in front of me. Just ran over some poor animal. I couldn't tell what it was. It looked like a little possum or something. Anyways, and I just hit it while I was rolling in pain. Hopefully, I killed it. That'd be the most merciful thing to do. Sorry. Anyways, all right. We're we're live and direct. <laughs> there we going. Carbon footprint. So as I'm driving, I'm creating a, a release of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And this carbon dioxide is what is known as a greenhouse gas. And we all know about this. This goes up in the atmosphere, it traps in infrared light, and it causes the planet to heat up. 
causes the plant to keep more radiated light inside of it. <sighs> Excuse me. And release less of it out into space. And so things tend to get hotter. Uh, that's just the general idea and concept. Um, now, the more fuel I burn, the bigger my carbon footprint is. And the bigger my carbon footprint is, then it goes in there. And typically, the carbon footprint is measured in tons of carbon dioxide per year. And remember, we're talking about a ton of gas. I mean, a ton of water uh, is literally just, you know, 3.3 feet by 3.3 feet by 3.3 feet. It, it's, it's a cube of water about well, just bigger than a yard. It's, it's a cubic meter, uh, a little bit bigger than a, a cubic yard. Something you could fit in a truck. So if, imagine if carbon dioxide is water, 30 cubic tons is going to be on the level of, I don't know, 30 truck beds worth of, of water. Maybe 15 truck beds if they're two cubic yard truck beds. Um, but I'm, when we're talking about tons of CO2, remember, this is a gas. And this is very small density. So when we put out a ton of CO2, we're talking about a very large volume of gas. This is something now on, on the scale of, oh boy, I'm going to put myself in trouble here because I did not do this calculation before I left. Uh, but I'm just going to take, take a stab and say it's going to be on, on the size of a small house. Maybe half a house is, is about the size of a ton of CO2. So... Um, that kind of gives you a good idea. So, I don't know, maybe a 1,000 square feet by 10 feet tall. Maybe something like that. I'm really, boy, it's been a while since I've done a calculation on this. So, my apologies. All I have to say, it's not a small number. So, if you do 30 of those, that, that gives you a bigger idea. And it could be a lot bigger than that, honestly. But that gives you a, a bit of an idea uh, how much we're talking about. So, as we break out the amount of CO2, and the average might be more than 30 tons, it might be 60 tons. It really depends on whether you have a car. It depends on how do you heat your house. If you live in a cold climate, the majority of your CO2 footprint is going to go into the heating of your house. That is by far and large the largest CO2 footprint you're going to have. The fact that you have electricity and the majority of the electricity, especially in cold areas where solar and wind is not going to help you when it gets really cold and you run that from gas, you're going to need to have some way to keep your house warm. And if that's coming through electricity, it's powered by gas, natural gas, or oil or coal, then that has a large carbon footprint. If you're burning wood to try to keep your house uh, warm, just in a normal chimney, uh, that's not a very efficient way to keep your house warm. Through a chimney, careful, there are other ways to do it with wood that's much more efficient. Um, and, and that's going to release a lot more CO2. Uh, many people think it's mostly transportation. Transportation ends up being really kind of a small percentage of your carbon footprint. I mean, anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. I guess it depends on how much you drive. Uh, your food that you eat, there's people will get on to you and say like, oh, look, if you eat beef, that has a very large carbon footprint. And in some ways, yes, your traditional way you raise beef where the the feed is, is raised in a traditional in a, conventional agricultural field sprayed with petrochemical chemicals fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and all the other sides you can think of and those all made from petroleum so that's sprayed on there and then that feed has to be transported to the feedlot where all the cows are raised up and then those cows have to be translated from the feedlot to the butchering facility and then they have to be transported again from the butchering facility to the store and then from the store they have to be transferred from the store to your house yeah there's a lot of transportation going in on there 
But a lot of people are going to say, well, no, even just the fact that the cow exists, it's farting. It's farting methane, which is even more of a greenhouse gas in your stuff. That's causing many issues. And it's true. If you are in a feedlot situation, yes, your cows are not helping with greenhouse gases. However, however, and we'll get into solutions in a bit, but let me just go ahead and say this. If you're doing something called rotational grazing, where the cattle are being grazed properly under the trained eye and the trained management eye uh, amongst fields such that the fields are being rotated, the cows actually are carbon negative. That means that the amount of grass they eat and the amount of gas they produce um, is offset by the amount of growth caused by the mowing action of, of the cow causing the grass to be stimulated to grow, the fertilizing action of the cow that now eats the grass and poops it back on the land and gives it a big bacterial shot in the arm and now the grass is going to grow even better and the density of the grassland is going to increase and you actually in work towards a carbon negative situation so uh rotational grazing is actually a good thing to do for the environment not necessarily a bad thing but if you're just doing feedlots yeah that's that's no bueno um and we'll talk about this later, because if, if you're like me, there ain't no way you're paying for organic beef. Uh-uh, not happening. Um, <laughs> so, don't worry, we're going to get to that. So the carbon footprint, this is like the biggest thing that most people talk about. And it's like, oh, you can buy offsets. Look, we can get offsets, so we can uh, supposedly continue to keep polluting, but then we're going to offset it because someone's going to go plant a bunch of trees in a place or save a piece of rainforest that was destined to become a field to grow more cows. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, those offset programs, they sound nice, but they really don't work a lot of the times. And, and again, it's, I feel like it's just kind of a cop-out to be like, I don't want to feel guilty, so let me do this so I don't feel guilty. Or many corporations do this so they look okay. The, the so-called greenwashing, where they look like, oh, yeah, look, we're an environmental company. We, we buy carbon offsets. But it may be those offsets aren't really working. It may be that they are working. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just saying eh, I'm not, I personally am not entirely convinced that they actually work. Um, so carbon footprint, that, that's a big one. Now, many people think that the carbon footprint is directly related to global warming, and I, I would tend to agree. I think the more carbon is going in there, the more likelihood there is that we're going to have see global warming. Um, and we're experiencing right now. Nonetheless, that's not the only concern we have. And so when you start to talk to people about econo- ecological concerns, environmental concerns, the next thing we'll bring up is pollution. So first of all, let's say the very first threat is, is global warming. And I agree, that's a big threat because the people that are going to be endangered by this really is everybody. I mean, I, I don't think there is a person on the planet that's going to escape from it. The ones that live on low-lying areas, uh, they're going to be the first ones to disappear. The nation island of Kiribati, if you can say that, uh, in the middle of the South Pacific. I mean, if you were to throw a dart right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, that's the one. Um, Hold up one second. Sorry, I'm getting a call. I'm going to have to come back to this in a second. All right, I'm back. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> discuss what we ran over. In any case, um, so the other footprint that we can have is is the uh, pollution footprint, contamination. What happens when we begin to dump 
fun, exciting chemicals into the environment. And it's kind of funny because many times with trash in general, we just kind of throw it out and hope it disappears and goes away. Um, oh, he's talking about cutie about them. So I'm, this is, this is the most distracted podcast I've ever had. In any case, my apologies, everybody. My apologies. We're getting through this. Let me go back to Kiribati. Kiribati is going to disappear in a few decades, if not sooner. I mean, the highest point in the island is like five meters, like 15 feet above sea level. So it's going to disappear. I don't remember if he, in the Olympic Games a while back ago, I guess it's going to be five years ago now, the last set of Summer Olympic Games, there was a weightlifter and he lifted weights. And every time he lifted weights, uh, when he dropped the weight bar, he'd like start doing this little dance. He was from Kiribati, and the reason he was doing this dance is he was trying to let the world know, hey, my island's about to disappear, everybody. Uh, that was his own little way to call attention to the issue that they're facing on this island and how they're trying to figure it out. And speaking of trash, what they're doing there is they're collecting the trash on the island, they're putting it in bags, um, as much organic trash as they can at least, or the plastic trash, and their organic trash are putting these things called banana circles, which is a whole different deal, which I've done research projects on, um, but that's for a different time. And then their plastic trash, they're actually trying to build up their beaches to make them make the island grow with their trash because they're, they're in a bad situation. And it's really expensive to export trash off an island in the middle of the Pacific. So they're trying to use the resources they have, the things that are coming to the island, to make the island taller as best as they can. Uh, it's not a great solution, but it's, it's something. Speaking of pollution, I mean, there, there's a thousand ways we can cut this one. I mean, you can go to microplastics getting in the oceans. So every time, and, and again, I'm not trying to shove guilt on everyone's thing. I'm just trying to make everyone understand that we're all guilty. So every time you wash your clothes, and let's say your, your water system goes to a public sewer system and then that drains to the ocean, the, those clothes that you wash, if they have polyester or nylon or anything in them, they actually begin to break down. They have these tiny little microplastics, and these microplastics get out of your washing machine, get drained down, and go out to the ocean, and then they get in the ocean, and then these tiny little tiny little bugger insects that are living in the ocean eat these microplastics, and then a bigger little bugger eats those things, and then a tiny little shrimp eats those, and then a bigger shrimp eats that one, and then the fish eats that shrimp, and it just keeps going on and on until the fish that we're catching from the ocean are actually really highly contaminated and full of a lot of nasty stuff. There's that big plastic just spot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that's just full of plastics and and the Navy, the U.S. Navy sends out ships every year to try to collect as much of this plastic as possible but it's breaking down the sunlight is breaking down this plastic into smaller bits which is getting into our food supply at the same time and getting into all of the world's food supply and it's contaminating all parts of the ocean, there's really no way to get away from it Uh, We can even talk about nuclear radiation, how every single molecule of water on the planet, except for maybe one or two extremely deep sources of water, are not uh, contaminated with a micro level of uh, uh, radioactive contaminants within the water. Uh, We can talk about just the amount of contaminants in us as human beings in our modern society and just the incredible high rates of cancer. How is it possible that even babies in the womb are getting cancer right now it's just unbelievable i mean the and and it's joel salatin talks about this he's a different guy we'll talk about later you know he says most americans believe it's it's just the work of the cancer fairy we don't have the tooth fairy we have the cancer fairy and just all of a sudden the cancer fairy shows up at night and poof you lost it's your turn to get cancer but the truth is we're all getting it because we're all in this contaminated mess and a lot of it's coming from our environment it's coming from our houses it's coming from our cars it's coming from workplaces and it's coming into us via our food and it's just very hard to get away from it and we are 
reaping literally what we're sowing. It's coming to us, all of it. I mean, the, the amount of contaminants is going in there and, and just, it's taking a huge effect on the ecosystem. I've been uh, seen a number of articles and most of myself. Windshields, as you're driving, you don't hit bugs anymore because we've killed so many of them. Uh, we're hearing about how the bees are disappearing because uh, beekeepers, even though it's illegal, they are using pesticides to try to protect their bees from mites. And the pesticides they're using are, guess what, a pesticide. They're designed to kill insects. Well, guess what the bees are? They're an insect. And so the bees are just going away. They're just flying away. They're choosing no longer to participate in the mess. They're dying off by the hundreds of thousands. And colony collapse disorder really is traceable back to a lot of the pesticides that are used within the beekeeping community. Illegally, but there's the way they control their mites because they have to. This is their business. This is their livelihood. And this is where it all gets so hard because now when you're forced to choose between your livelihood and the environment, the environment is always going to take backseat. Always. Livelihood's going to come first. And I understand. If I've got kids I need to feed and I need to do that, if I have to choose between nature and my children, I'm going to choose my children. Again, I think there's ways we can do things that are not going to force us into that dichotomy. Not going to force us into making those types of decisions. And I'm not saying they're easy. Not by any stretch of the imagination, but there are ways. Um... So contamination, pollution, it's, it's bad. It's very bad. I mean, and there have been strides to create less contamination, less pollution, but it, it's out there. It's not over by any stretch of the imagination, and there's huge work that needs to be done. Uh, I mean, just, just the level. I mean, even all of your smartphones, all this kind of stuff, that you can look up this video of this lake in the middle of China of... Uh, leftovers from rare earth minerals used to make smartphones and particular smartphone screens and the amount of cell phones that are produced in China and I'm I'm recording this on a Chinese produced cell phone right now this is my own level of hypocrisy uh, <laughs> they mine these things and then they just slough off all the, the leftovers into this lake and this lake is black there are pipes pumping into it from every direction you can imagine it. It's just a hole in the ground that's collecting all this waste. There's nothing growing within miles of this thing. And it's mildly radioactive because of all the stuff they're dumping in there. It's a mess. But that's how we get all of our cell phones. That's how we get all of our smart devices. Anything that has a screen on it, that's where it's coming from. And we're slowly contaminating this one little corner of the planet by it. But trust me, if you contaminate just one little corner, it's going to go everywhere. The wind's going to pick it up. It's going to blow. It's going to get into everything we got. New innovations, new innovations coming in the agricultural sector that have actually been around for a little while. Persistent herbicides. These are things that, for example, if I'm a farmer trying to grow hay, and I don't like the fact that there's some plants growing in my hay field that have broad leaves, because when I go to feed that to the cows, the cows don't like it, and I can't sell my hay for as much money. Uh, I can spray my field once with this persistent herbicide, and it will kill all broadleaf plants, including trees, including peas, including tomatoes, including weeds, including dandelions, including anything. So the only thing that's going to grow on this field now is going to be grass, anything that has a very narrow leaf. Nothing else can grow there. Everything else is going to die. Now, these persistent herbicides are so crazy because they come in, in concentrations of parts per billion, and yet the effect is incredible. I spray the field once, and that the effect from that persistent herbicide is going to last 
for years. The half-life on these chemicals is on the scale of eight years, nine years, 10 years. So that means if I spray it now, I'm still gonna enjoy up to half of the effect 10 years from now. So still 50% of it is gonna be working, killing off anything that's there. In 20 years, still 25% of it is still gonna be in 30 years, 12.5% is there. And that's still enough of concentration to make nothing grow on it except for grass. So now what happens is I take this hay that's been sprayed with this persistent herbicides, the ground that's been sprayed with the persistent herbicides, I feed it to the cows, it goes to the cows, it does not break down, and now wherever the cows are pooping, guess what? They're killing off any broadleaf things, including trees. So now the fields are becoming to the point where they will only grow grass, nothing broadleaf will grow on it, and that's a big problem. Now if you're like, oh wow, I want to go home and, and grow a garden, I'm going to go out to Home Depot and buy a bunch of cow manure. So I'm going out and buying cow manure. I take it home, put it in my garden, and all of a sudden, all my tomatoes look like they've got cancer. They look like the, the leaves just curl up, wither, and die. My peas won't grow. In fact, I've destroyed my entire garden area for the next 20 years, for the next couple of decades or more. I'm not going to be able to grow anything on this at all. And you think, oh, maybe if I compost it, it'll break it down. No, it does not get broken down in compost. These chemicals do not die. Yay! Look at us. We've made a wonderful way to help our hay growers not have broadleaf leaves in them. But now we're destroying every single bit of thing on the earth that I'd like to grow that has broad leaves, including trees, uh, everywhere in the world because it's going to slowly spread all these places. And you have to be super, super, super on top of it to make sure it doesn't get in to you and your lands and everything if you ever want to hope to grow a tomato or lettuce or anything like that. So it's not easy. Not easy at all. The contamination is spreading and it's, it's ubiquitous everywhere. And finally we come to what I consider to be probably one of the biggest ones, the most concerning ones, uh, and this is land degradation. The loss of arable soils. When I say arable, it means you can till it and tillage is not a good thing and actually tillage is what's causing the loss of these soils. Because when fields are farmed with conventional methods, the amount of soil breaks down. Uh, the soil begins to separate out. The clays go to the bottom. The sands go to the top. And so as water lands on top of the field, uh, now the sand is washed off. The clay forms a hard pan on the bottom, and the, all the water does no, long, no longer penetrates into the soil at a deeper level. It just gets washed off. So now all the fertilizer that's placed on this field to make the stuff grow in it, because it won't grow without this fertilizer now that the soil has been completely destroyed, uh, now that's going to wash off into the rivers and create these algae blooms that happen all over the place. So you can see these that happen frequently in the Gulf of Mexico from all of the fertilizer that's getting flushed down the Mississippi. This is common and normal uh, and has become part of our, our daily lives that we see on the news all the time and we hear about all these fish that are dying. Well, that, that's the reason why. It's just this is how we grow our food. Um, and this is now a big issue. And sadly, every time we till the soil, every time we add a uh, nitrogen-based or chemical-based fertilizer, every time we add a herbicide or a pesticide or a fungicide, we're destroying the life in the soil itself and restoring the ability of the soil to retain moisture, we're restoring the, 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 the ability of the soil to sustain life itself. And so now we're growing our crops not within life-bearing soil, but within a chemical medium. And this is actually not providing any sort of health to us who are eating this mess. In fact, this is probably a big reason why a lot of us are getting cancer and all these bad types of diseases, because it's just coming into us from this, and we're not getting it from any kind of healthy soil. The, the UN has, has said, this is a big issue. We may actually run out of tillable soils in 50 years. 
Uh, this is kind of a big one, like a really big one. Like if you like eating, this is a big one. We're losing tons. Ton, like, and when I say tons, I mean like acre tons, like tons per acre of soil per year. And it's, it's not a small number and it's disappearing. And eventually we're going to have a spot where either we have to grow everything in very intensive energy, uh, intensive, intensive hydroponic systems, chemically based. So now we're reducing even more the amount of health we can get out of it. Um, or we're just not going to have any soil and we're going to have a mess and we're not going to be able to retain the water within these soils. And when we can't retain the water in the soils, guess what? They're more prone to extreme changes of temperature. That means that they don't have the, the resistive or the inertial, the, the thermal inertial effect of water. Water does not like to change temperature. The more water you got in a spot, the more likely it is that spot is going to stay constant in temperature. Well, if we remove the, 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 the water from the soils, guess what's going to happen? Now, all of a sudden, you're going to have a mess. And now the temperature is more likely to change radically. So that's why your deserts get so cold at night and so hot in the day because there's really not much water held there at all. Uh, but when you have a place where there's lots of water, it tends to be pretty constant. So that's a big, big, big one. The loss of soils is massive. All right, I got to cut it for now. And I hate to leave an episode kind of a uh, bummer moment. I really don't like that. And and I don't like it because this is, especially this topic is so much about bummer moments. Like, oh man, yeah, what a drag. And I don't want to end here. I do not want to end here. But I'm out of time. So I got to. Next episode, we're going to talk about some solutions, some things we can do and dive into these a little deeper. Talk about what can be done because this is this is important. I don't want people to just walk like, eh. But understand, this is important, and, and I'm going to more go even more into the biblical basis about this, why this is important, what we can do about it, um, and, and be like, there's more to this than just blaming the scapegoat, finding a scapegoat and blaming them. No, that's not the solution here, nor to say, oh, it's impossible, I can't deal with it, I'm not going to mess with it. No, that's not the solution either. We have ways. God has given us the power and the authority over all of his creation to take care of it, to steward it. If he gave us that authority... He didn't mess up. He did not do wrong in doing that. He gave it to us on purpose, and we can rise to the occasion. We can rise to this challenge, and we can make the appropriate changes necessary to actually bring about full and abundant life on all of God's creation. Now, some of you say, well, the world's about to come to an end, and it may be. But guess what? Blessed is the servant who's doing his master's will when he returns. Yes or no? Yes or no? If you stick your head in the sand, all you're doing is saying, he's not coming back. Or, I'm just going to take my talent and bury it because I know you're a hard man. No. Go out. Multiply your talent. This is part of what we got to do. Let's talk about how we can do it. All right. Be blessed. Do good. Have a wonderful week. And I'll see you on the flip side.